My dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to uh, imagine with me for just a moment a domestic scene played out, I'm sure, in countless homes, countless times throughout the history of humanity. Two siblings, let's imagine them a couple few years apart, say seven and four, okay? And they're playing nicely in little sister's room when out of nowhere, all of a sudden, mom and or dad hears the scream, okay, coming from upstairs. They hear the scream, followed shortly thereafter by more yelling or feeble excuses or worse, a contented silence on the part of the offender, <laughs> okay? So, what does mom and or dad do? Put on their law and order hat, march up the stairs, grab both of them, bring them down, and start the simultaneous roles of investigator, judge, and jury. The offense is quickly discovered and justice must be done. So the parent says, young man, you tell your sister you're sorry right now or you've eaten your last dessert until you're 18 years old. <laughs> right? And the older one, miserably failing in his attempt to act as his own attorney, <laughs> finally says, because he knows he can't escape, fine, I'm sorry, and stomps up the stairs and slams the door to his bedroom, but not too hard, <laughs> lest the wrath of mom and or dad should descend once again, right? Justice has been served, parenting win, right? Uh, I'm not saying it's autobiographical. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's pretty dang familiar to anybody who's had more than one child at a time in their house. Right? We try to teach our kids from a very young age to apologize when they've messed up, to say they're sorry when they've harmed somebody. Huh? It's parenting 101. To apologize when you've hurt someone. It's the price that you have to pay huh? to balance the scales of justice. And it's not an easy thing to apologize because to do that, you have to admit that you messed up. You have to admit that you did something wrong. There's some humility to face up to one's failings or thoughtlessness, even if it was nothing more than taking your sister's Barbie car and turning it into a hunting rig for your G.I. Joe, right? <laughs> a price has to be paid, and even small human beings get it. They understand it, even if they don't like it. They understand it. And it strikes me, as often as we teach our young ones to apologize when they've messed up, to say they're sorry, how often do we actually teach them to say, I forgive you? Mm. Now, you say you're sorry. Okay, fine, I'm sorry. Now, you say, I forgive you. Wait, what? <laughs> we don't do that very often, I think. And the reason we don't is because I think we know instinctively in our bones that forgiveness is harder than the apology and forgiveness is something that cannot be commanded, right? It has to come organically from the one who was offended. 
In the world of law and order, crime and punishment, forgiveness just doesn't really seem to fit into the equation, right? In the world of law and order, when something has happened amiss, what has to happen is the scales must be balanced. So we ask for, you know, for some kind of a, a payment to be made, even if the payment is nothing more than a weak admission of guilt, right? Somehow the scales have to be balanced. Forgiveness doesn't really seem to fit in there very often. The balances will be squared, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a broken relationship has been fixed, that it's been mended. Forgiveness, we know, is always grace. It's always a free will offering. It's a gift that wipes away the past with its offenses, and it opens up the possibility of a new future. True forgiveness forgets the past. It expunges, puts back here, the record of debts owed. Forgiveness forgets, which is precisely what makes it so dang hard. We have a hard time forgetting, Oof. especially when we've been hurt, when we've been harmed. Have you seen the Godfather movies? Come on now. They've been out for 50 years. I hope you've seen them by now. Academy Award-winning movies. If you haven't, that's okay. I'll explain this scene. There's a scene in the second movie, Godfather Part Two, that is probably one of the most chilling scenes of human nature in all of cinematography. And it's not a bloody scene. Michael Corleone has become the head of the Corleone crime family okay, at the death of his father, Vito, which happened at the end of the first Godfather movie. And uh, that one ends with Michael, the son who takes over, orchestrating the pretty violent deaths of all of those who had been enemies of the family, who had stood against their business interests. Not personal, just business, right? That's how he justified the violence. Well, now in the second movie, an attempt is be has been made on Michael Corleone's life at his own home outside of Reno, Nevada. And he's convinced that somebody within the organization, within his family, has acted as a mole to go against him, right? Has been feeding his enemies information and in it to enable this hit, attempted hit on his life. And he's intent on rooting it out. Well, later in the movie we find out that he does find out who the mole is and it's his own brother, Fredo. Fredo was used as a pawn by his enemies. Because Fredo is a little bit dim, okay? And he didn't think that they were actually going to try to whack his older brother. But that's what happens. Michael finds out about it. Fredo makes a weak apology, a weak justification. But Michael isn't having it. He exiles him from the family business. He says, I don't want to see you anymore. As far as I'm concerned, you don't exist. When you come to visit our mother, I want to know a day in advance so that I won't have to look at you when you come. And he exiles him from the family business. Well, later on in the movie, their mother has died. And they're at the wake. And Fredo is there. And their older sister, Connie, comes to Michael, begging him to forgive Fredo, to bring him back. 
She says, he's so vulnerable, he's so, he's so weak, and he's so sweet, and he needs you. So Michael goes to Fredo and wordlessly puts a hand on him, and Fredo stands up, and he falls into him in a hug. Seemingly relieved, finally, Fredo is to, to be forgiven, to be pardoned. And while he's hugging him, Michael is looking stone-faced beyond him at Al Neary, and Al is Michael's head henchman. And you know that the unspoken command is being given to take Fredo's life right then and there. And what makes that moment so chilling isn't the utter ruthlessness of it. It's how absolutely human it is to not forgive, to never forget. Huh? To never forget. Not personal, just business. That's how we conduct ourselves. And this is what makes Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew chapter 18 so astonishing. And frankly, what I think so utterly impossible. Jesus has just gotten done telling his disciples, remember, how important it is that they stick together, that they do absolutely everything in their power to keep relationships with one another. He even lays out that schematic that we saw last week. When someone in the family harms you, what should you do? Go talk to them. And if that doesn't work, take someone else with you and see if you can't put it back together. And if that doesn't work, take it to the whole church. See if you can't bring them back. Never stop. Never stop trying to mend the brokenness within the family. And then Peter asks the question that we have for today. Well, Lord... How many times should I forgive someone who sinned against me? Hmm. Should I forgive them like seven times? Now, what you have to understand here is if Peter, you know, was presumably a good Jew, he would have been familiar with the rabbinic teaching that taught that you should forgive someone who's harmed you three times before writing them off. So I can imagine Peter thought he was doing a pretty good job of upping the ante for, and saying, should I forgive him seven times? That's a lot more than three. What does Jesus say? No. He recognizes the question for what it is. Peter wants to know, what's the law and order prescription for how I should treat someone who's harmed me? And so Jesus says, no. God doesn't want you to forgive someone seven times. God would rather you simply be a forgiving person. There's a difference, do you see? The difference is between counting and forgetting. Counting and forgetting. The story Jesus tells to drive home his point only makes this whole forgiving business seem that much more incredible and that much more unlikely, right? His little parable of the, of the servant who owes his master 10,000 talents of silver. You know how much that would be worth today? About half a billion dollars, Okay? There's no way somebody's servant owes the master a half a billion dollars. It's an incon inconceivable amount. It's ridiculous. That's the point, right? He could never pay this off. Oh, the way Jesus tells the story, it makes it sound like he thinks he could. He begs the king, right? Just forgive me, just forgive me, and I'll pay it all back, which on its face is utterly ridiculous. It's nonsense. He could never pay it back. And so in this incredible, unthinkable act, the king forgives the slave the debt. 
opening up a whole new possibility of life for him, right? He restores this servant's life by essentially dying, the master does. Dying to what is owed him. Forgets it. But in the story, we see that this forgiven servant just does not get it. He's been given his whole life back. But the price paid by the one who gave it to him is never acknowledged by him, right? Instead of taking that opportunity of dwelling in his forgiveness and extending it to others, he grabs the first guy he runs into who owes him a few bucks, right? And he demands payment. When that guy can't pay him, he has him thrown into debtor's prison. Why? Why does he do that? Well, apparently, because forgiveness is beyond him still. He can't stop counting. He can't forget. He can't bring himself to die to what is owed him. Last week, the question that was kind of put before us by the gospel lesson was, how do we behave when a fellow cross-carrier, a fellow member of the family of faith, harms us, sins against us. This week, it would seem to be, what's the price to actually do that? What's it going to cost you to actually mend relationships that are broken? Building true community demands we leave our pride at the door, right? And basically, bear patiently with one another. In other words, it demands that we die to everything that's owed us. And I don't know about you, but I have a really hard time with the whole prospect of dying <laughs> in general, dying to anything, hard time letting go. You know, I think it's tempting for us to read this parable, this story of the unforgiving servant, as prescriptive, you know, as Jesus saying, unless you forgive just this way, you're sunk because then God will not forgive you. It sure sounds like it when you read it, right? It sounds that way, but I've come, to, I've come to the conclusion that maybe this story is actually a lot more descriptive than it is prescriptive. It describes the way we are. It describes the way I am. Receiving from God this incredible freedom in the forgiveness of everything that I owed to my Creator and my Master, and yet what do I do? I turn around and I throttle the first person who owes me anything. It's simply human nature. It's the way that I am. It's the Michael Corleone inside of me, right? What Luther called the old Adam, always bubbling up to the surface. Hmm. We can't even stop counting what we owe to God, even though it's already been forgotten by God, right? I create for myself this torture by the forgiveness that I withhold others and and by refusing to accept the fact that I'm already forgiven. That's not a hell waiting off in the future somewhere. That's a hell we too often dwell in right here, right now. So I'm grateful today. I'm grateful that these are not the last words that Jesus speaks on the subject of forgiveness. Much farther down the line in Jesus' ministry with the twelve on the very night that he knew that they were going to betray him, the night that he knew that they were going to run away and abandon him and deny him, he gathers them around a table and he offers them the cup of the new covenant 
for the forgiveness of sins, Matthew tells us. For the forgiveness of sins. Matthew, who gives us all these parables of judgment, you know, warning us of what might happen to us, he's the only one that includes those words at the Last Supper, for the forgiveness of sins. Hmm. I wonder, maybe Jesus' parables are circling back again now with the king dying to everything that's owed him from a bunch of servants who continually refuse to die to themselves. But God never stops forgiving. God never stops loving. He stopped counting a long time ago. And this is what I need to hear. It's what I need to hang on to. Never stops loving and forgiving me, a recalcitrant unforgiver. One of my favorite authors on the parables, who I have quoted numerous times from this pulpit, Robert Capon, wrote that there is only one unpardonable sin, and that is to withhold pardon from other people. The only thing, he says, that can keep us out of the joy of the resurrection is to join the unforgiving servant in his refusal to die. The ability to forgive and die is what is, to what is owed us is always a gift from the hand of God. To be able to forgive somebody, that's not something you can work yourself up to. That has to be a gift of God's Holy Spirit. And it does come when we allow it to come. Remember that story that I began with, you know, the, the siblings fighting with each other? Um, as familiar of that, as that story of conflict is, so too, I think, is its resolution. And the resolution in that story does not come with the verdict from mom or dad, right? It doesn't come with the angry stomping up the stairs and the slamming of the door after the reluctant apology. The resolution comes about half an hour later. When you hear a noise out in the living room and you look out and you see that brother and sister have built a blanket fort and are giggling and they're playing together again as if nothing had happened, right? The forgiveness might not have been spoken, but it was extended by the one forgetting the offense of the other. Whenever did we forget how to do that? Huh? Maybe there's hope for us human beings still, right? If only we could remember that. Amen.